0: scripture text for this morning's sermon is Romans chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 13. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved.
1: So, Father, put in our hearts now the saving call. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true for the first moment of justification, and it's true for every day of our lives. May we live in prayer. May we live leaning upon the mercy of your Son purchased by his precious blood. There's so many needs downtown and so many needs here in Roseville for which we need to call upon the Lord and from which we need to be saved. So, Lord, do a saving work for the lost, do a saving work for the saved, I pray this morning, so that a thousand things are different in our lives. Because we have heard the word of the Lord and believed and called. Help me now to be faithful to your word and to speak it with humility and faithfulness and boldness and spiritual power and saving effect. I pray through Christ. Amen. It would be reasonable for you to ask why uh, 21st century Americans should spend so much time thinking about the problem of Israel. Especially the problem of ancient Israel. Israel from 4,000, 3,000, 2,000 years ago. Why would we bother to ponder the problem? The problem being Israel, according to Romans 9 to 11, as a whole didn't find righteousness and therefore didn't find salvation and eternal life. Why bother? It seems so remote from terrorism, Riyadh and Casablanca. It seems so remote from SARS in Taiwan or Toronto. It seems so remote from a possible bloodbath in Congo between the What? The Hema and the Lindu tribes, ready to replay Rwanda. Did you write President Bush yet and tell him not to do the Clinton thing and wait until it was over and say he was sorry? It seems so far from economic upheaval and depression and unemployment. What is ancient Israel got to do with all of our lives? Romans 9 to 11 deals mainly with the problem of Israel. Why she didn't attain righteousness. Why she missed the meaning of her own book. Why she failed to embrace the Messiah and stumbled over the stumbling stone. These three chapters are all about Israel almost. We come in, we Gentiles come in, about verse 24 of chapter 9. We're there on and off through the chapter, but the overwhelming intention of these chapters is to deal with the Failure of Israel to embrace the Christ. Why should that matter to us? Let me give you a reason that we haven't been talking about very much. I've given you others, but here's a different one. Implicit in the others. Listen, it matters to us because Israel is the historical microcosm of the conscience of the world. Or to put it another way, Israel is the historical theater where your life is played out for you to look at. That's the meaning of the existence of Israel. What goes on inside you spiritually as a human being and every other person? has gone on in Israel historically. The Bible recounts the history of Israel so that you can see yourself, understand you and God and how you are making it or not making it, and how your eternal destiny hangs on that relationship. It's all lived out in history there for you to watch on the stage. I'm getting this from Romans 3.19. If you think I'm making this up, listen. Now, we know that whatever the law says, that is the law, the Old Testament for Israel. It speaks to those who are under the law. That's Israel. The book was written first for Israel. They're entrusted with the scriptures. It's written for those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. You see those two phrases? What the law says to Israel, what this first two-thirds of your, your Bible is speaking to Israel, is spoken so that John Piper's mouth in the 21st century will be stopped. And the whole world held accountable before God. That's what Israel's history is about. It's a microcosm of the conscience of the world It is a historical theater so that the world, by the writing of the Bible and the preaching of missions, might hear the story and know itself. That's why it matters. If you wonder, is God just wasting our 21st century time with these old stories? Did God spend 2,000, now 4,000 years with the people of Israel just because it would become out of date? We need some modern, up-to-date word for the 21st century American. That is, He did not waste 24,000 years of his historical involvement. He didn't waste those 4,000 years. Let me try to explain this microcosm, this theater, in four steps. Number one, Every human being in these two rooms, downtown and Roseville, as well as everyone outside, has a form of the law of God written on your heart. Romans 2.15, the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences bear witness with conflicting thoughts accusing or even excusing them. So, a form of this Old Testament law is written on every human being. And that creates the setup for the microcosm of Israel's history being the place where you can watch your own conscience played out. Second, we all fail to live up to the law that we have. Romans 3.9 nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So not only is there a law written across my Gentile 21st century heart that has a form of the law written in this book, which was played out historically 4,000 years ago roughly or so, but I and they feel... And I can watch the dynamics of my failure as I read the story. You're not very good at knowing yourself. Believe me, you're not. The self-deceptions that we have are absolutely incredible. The self-justifications and the not-knowings of John Piper's mind and the way I relate to my wife, my children, my staff, if I don't have a book, a mirror outside of me in which I see myself, I'll never know me. Never. There is a microcosm and there is a theater going on in history recorded authoritatively in this book by which I know me, and you know you if you want to know. Third, since we all have a law, same law in me as in Israel, since Israel failed and I fail, every one of us condemns ourselves. This is what the conscience does. Everybody in this room has had feelings of guilt. Those are God's small witnesses to the big judgment coming. And when you feel them, you know, you know, if you're honest, that is a small echo of the just judgment of God. And then if you want to see it clearly, go to the history of Israel and see what judgment looks like. Get a taste ahead of time so that you know what these witnesses of the conscience in your failure to live up to your own law look like when Israel fails to live her law and God comes down on those people. Oh, learn from this theater of your life, writ large in the Bible, in the history of Israel. Fourthly, the remedy of Israel... Israel's guilt and condemnation is relevant to us because God's purpose in the way He saves sinners, guilty sinners, is the same. It's perfectly suited for Jews and it's perfectly suited for 21st century Gentiles. And what we learn in watching Israel, and you must learn it there or you won't learn it. Jesus was a Jew. All of his disciples were Jew. He came into the world in a Jewish setting. If you don't care about the Jewishness of the Bible, you won't understand Jesus Christ. And he is given now as the way we find remedy for this conscience that's condemning us and this objective law that is condemning us and the God who is judging us. How do we get out of this situation and into the favor of the Almighty God so we can have life and joy with him forever? It is not Israel failed to see by better law-keeping. It is by Christ crucified, risen and perfect outside of us. A great work was done. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul connects the remedy justification by faith alone with the bringing together of Gentile and Jew. This is Romans 328. We hold that one is justified by faith. Apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't that an amazing connection? Do you see the connection there? We hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Meaning, God designed this remedy for Israel so that it would work perfectly in every tribe and every people around the world. Every tribe has the same problem. Guilt before a holy God, condemnation under the wrath of God, the one problem to be solved among the Hema and Lindu tribes, the one problem in America, in Russia, in Iraq, the one problem is alienation from God, hostility to God, insubordination toward God, wrath from God, judgment from God, condemnation from God, and turning it All around so that he's our friend and we're his child and we have everlasting life, every tribe included. There's only one solution to that problem and it is Jesus Christ crucified and risen and it isn't better law keeping. We don't go with a gospel message to the Jews or to the Muslims or to the Buddhists or the Hindus or pagan Americans with the statement, get your act together because he's mad at you for your sin. That is not the message we bring. We go with a message. He has done a historical work in Israel to tell you your problem. And then he brought a remedy into the world, his son. He lived a perfect righteousness for you. He died a perfect punishment in your place. He rose triumphant from the dead. If you embrace him as your only hope and treasure, all of that is yours. And you are righteous and you are forgiven. That's the message we go with. Look at it again in chapter 10. This is the text. You're wondering, where is the text? It's coming. This is all introduction. Romans 10, 11 to 13. Here it is again. This connection of the remedy with the scope of the gospel. For the scripture says, verse 11 of chapter 10, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, this is Jesus now, don't stumble over the stumbling stone, believe in him. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for, now here it is. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. You see the connection again? Belief is the way, so there's no distinction. It doesn't matter because all the distinctions fall. All the racial distinctions and all the tribal distinctions, all the ethnic hatreds and animosities, they fall because there's one way to this God through this Savior, and that is everyone who believes in him bestowing his riches on all who call upon him for everyone, everyone, Jew and Greek who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So now we've seen four steps that explain how Israel is the theater of my life and the microcosm of the conscience of the world. Let me sum them up. Number one, all of us have a law written on our hearts. It's the law written for the Jews in the Bible. Number two, All of us fail to live up to our invisible law written on our hearts. And so did the Jews fail to live up to their law. Thirdly, all of us have a conscience, a little internal judge who condemns us for all the failures to live up to our own standards, not to mention God's standards. And so did Israel fail and condemn herself and God condemned them and did many judgments for us to see and be warned by. And fourthly, the remedy is not better law keeping, but a messiah who fulfilled the law for us and died in our place. Their history was pointing to Jesus and your spiritual struggles point to Jesus. Israel's historical story and our internal personal story both lead to Jesus. That's the way God's working. The whole story of Israel is Christ. For righteousness to all who believe. And the whole story of your conscience. Now, you can't read this off your conscience. That's why the gospel has to be preached. And I'm preaching it. The whole story of your conscience, the meaning of your late night struggles, the meaning of your early morning depressions is Christ for righteousness. Christ for righteousness for all who believe. That's the meaning of your life. Find it. There is a fifth step in understanding the way Israel is a theater or a microcosm of the conscience of the world. Here it is, the fifth one. Namely, why Israel missed the point of it all is explained by Paul so that you won't miss it. That's what the text is about last week and this week. Paul is wrestling in uh, 930, Romans 930, all the way into our text with this issue. Why? Why do Gentiles have the Christ and the Jews not have the Christ? Why did they stumble over the stumbling stone? Why did they miss the point of their own book? That's the issue. And it's a fifth issue. Because it's given an explanation of why they stumbled is given to us so that we won't make the same mistake. So that's where we are in today's text. Everything up till now has been, this matters? For you, 21st century American concerned about terrorism, this matters. It turns out, after all, to be very relevant to the rage and the anger and the bitterness and the fears and the discouragements of terrorism and SARS and economic downturn. It really does prove to be massively relevant to get you through life in the face of these things. Okay, here we go. Why did Israel make this mistake the answer was given last week. Let's read that and then start up again. Verses 3 and 4 of Romans 10. Being ignorant, this is talking about Israel now, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. But don't, don't think this is just some distant, this is true in Tel Aviv today for 99% of Israel. All right? Don't don't blow this away 2,000 years ago. This is true in Temple Israel who met Friday night on Hennepin Avenue. This is true today. This is relevant for your Jewish friends. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now explain that, Paul. All right. Here's the next verse. Here's what I mean. For Christ is the end of the law or the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The reason they didn't submit to God's righteousness is that they didn't see that God's righteousness is Christ for righteousness to everyone Who believes they stumbled over the Christ instead of embracing the Christ as the righteousness to which the whole Old Testament has been pointing. Now, that was last week. Now, Paul launches into an explanation or let's say an illustration from the Old Testament of that explanation. And it is very complex. Let's see if we can untie it. We're in verses five to eight today. We'll continue in this text next week and move on into nine to 13. So we two weeks On the text that was read, we're focusing on 5 to 8 for the remainder of our time this morning. What Paul does in illustrating from the Old Testament this truth that he's just stated in 10.4 is to say that the Old Testament teaches two kinds of righteousness. A righteousness, he calls it from law, and a righteousness, he calls it from faith. And he means faith in Christ. You leave that out, I think you'll make hash out of this text. It is not generic faith. It is faith in Christ. You see it in 10.4 and you see it in the verses following. So don't put Christ as the Christ for righteousness and redeemer out of your mind as you think faith in these verses. First, he illustrates the righteousness from Law. Verse five, quoting Leviticus eighteen five. Let's read verse five. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, or the righteousness from the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them or by it, either by the commandments or by the righteousness of doing the commandments. So he said, Moses laid down a principle here. Perfect obedience to the law obtains eternal life. If we would trust him and by grace never sin, we would be saved and have everlasting life. Paul knows, and Moses knows, nobody has ever been saved that way except one person who never needed forgiveness and never needed the imputation of righteousness, and that's Jesus, who did trust his father perfectly and did never sin and fulfilled the law perfectly. But nobody else did. So you might say, well, what good is that statement in the Old Testament then, since nobody can do anything with it except learn the most important thing in the world? Maybe. Namely, that God's primal, ultimate demand is perfect faith and no sin. Say it again. God's primal, ultimate demand never-changing command is perfect faith, perfect trust in the Father, and no sin. If you do that, you will be perfectly suited for eternal life. And Nobody ever has except one person. I'll just give you another pointer from the Apostle Paul to this principle of perfection. Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. So here come some people who are saying, get circumcised, you'll be completely right with God. Get finished. Your, your justification will be completed. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you want to go this route... If you want to follow the principle laid down in Leviticus 18.5, you may try, but you will then be obliged not to keep 99% of the law, but all of it. If you fail in one point, you need the righteousness of another in the presence of this God. Which leads now to the other kind of righteousness in verses 6 to 8. Now, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14 here, inserting his own interpretive words along the way, making it very strange. And I want to try and see if I can make it make sense to you. Now, keep in mind this. Verse 4 is what he's trying to illustrate from the Old Testament. Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the point. You see the word for the beginning of verse five. He's illustrating that point. So don't let that out of your mind as we read this. So let me read the Old Testament text first. You, can, you don't have time to go there. Let me just read Deuteronomy 30. You can watch Paul and you'll be able to kind of see how he was using and applying this text. It's very strange, but I'll read it. Deuteronomy 30:11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. So it's the commandment that he wants to. He's talking about. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say. Well, who will go over the sea, or Paul has under the sea, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. In other words, don't say that, Moses says, don't talk like that. But the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So. Paul looks at that text. And you know what he sees? He sees Christ. (laughs) Amazing. He sees the word of faith that we proclaim. There it is. I said, whoa, I don't see it. Now, let's let... I'll read what you were looking at and read verses 6 to 8. Here's what Paul does with that text. But the righteousness based on faith says... He's contrasting that with the righteousness of the law. And now he's talking about the other righteousness, which he has just said in verse four is Christ for righteousness. All right. Don't let that out of your mind. Don't bail on the context. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, well, who will ascend into heaven? And then he sticks in. That is to bring Christ down. Where in the Old Testament it said, bring the commandment down so I can do it. Let the wheels turn. Verse 7. Or, don't say, who will descend into the abyss? And then he puts in, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Putting Christ exactly where the commandment was in the Old Testament. Well, what does it say? What does the righteousness of faith say? It says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is, he sticks in again, his interpretation, the word of faith that we proclaim. That's really puzzling. So we we got to think on this. Now, how in the world does Paul get that? (laughs) How does he... uh, See Christ where Moses said commandment. How does he see the incarnation to bring Christ down where they were saying, get the commandment near so we can do it. And the resurrection, bring Christ up. Where they were saying, bring the commandment up so we can do it. Is this legitimate? Can he legitimately see Christ there? Or is he just a bad exegete? Is Paul just disregard the wider, deeper teachings of the Old Testament and just slap it around and make it fit what he wants? That's a big question. So here's my four-step effort to show how Paul sees Deuteronomy 30: 11 to 14 as pointing to Christ our righteousness. Number one, Paul knew from the Old Testament and he knew from experience and he knew from inspiration that all people sin and none is righteous. It says it very clearly, for example, in First Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. First Kings 8.46, not to mention Paul's own statement in Romans 3.23. Therefore, he knew something very strange was being said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. This commandment is not too hard for you. I think Paul read that and said, "Hmm. It's been too hard for every human being since Adam. It'll be too hard for every human being except Jesus. What? Moses, in the Sam Hill, do you mean? Not a person has ever fulfilled this commandment. It is too hard for every human being on earth save one. I think that's the kind of thought that enters into Paul's mind, which gets the wheels turning about Christ. Second, when Paul uses the words in verse 6, Do not say in your heart. You know where those words come from? Do not say in your heart. They come from Deuteronomy 9, 4. Which says this. Do not say in your heart. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. That's where he got those words. Which means that in Paul's mind as he's reading Verse chapter 30. He's got nine in mind. I tell you, this man read the Bible so comprehensively, so integratively that I think his exegetical powers under God's guidance so far surpassed every Old Testament scholar that's ever lived. I will be very slow to call his interpretation into question. He's got chapter nine in mind where it says, don't say in your heart. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me. He, he, in other words, okay, promised land inheritance with all of its typical significance about entering into the promised land of God's favor through the Messiah didn't happen through my righteousness. Therefore, the righteousness of faith dare not say by my righteousness I have gotten the land. It was sheer grace. They didn't deserve the land. And if you ever find favor with God, it will be sheer grace, not because you have found the commandment. Doable. That's a second thing Paul has in his mind when he goes to this text and reads it. How we enter into the promised land of God's favor is by one who found the commandment doable, so that in him this text might come true for us. Third, a few verses earlier in verse 6 of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, Paul saw that perfect obedience of Israel would one day really come. It really would. And yours too is come. And the way it's going to come, he says, is by the circumcision of the heart. A new covenant promise is given in verse six. And we know that Paul saw Christ as the bringer of the new covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. And so when we read this verse, we read Christ. Paul did. This is verse six of Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will. Love the Lord your God with all, not 99%, but all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see the connection? All your heart, all your soul live. No way will we ever do that in this life. Except one person. One person loved him with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, all his mind. And lived because of that love and faith and obedience. And now the gospel is, first, you may experience that in him as his obedience is credited to you. And you will one day, by the perfection of the circumcision of your heart, which has begun, obey like that yourself. But anybody who claims to fulfill that here needs to read Romans 7 again we need Christ oh holy saint you need Christ desperately fourth now paul is prepared with these three insights and these three uh, increasingly close contextual hints paul is ready now to read verses 11 to 14 of Deuteronomy 30 with Christ in mind and understand what it's all pointing to just like verse 4 said it was all pointing to Christ as the goal of the law for righteousness that's what Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 to 14 is doing it is doing Romans 10:4 so let's read it slowly Verse 6. But the righteousness of faith, the righteousness based on faith in Jesus Christ as our righteousness. You can't leave behind verse 4. Faith is not generic faith here. The righteousness based on faith in Jesus Christ as our righteousness says, do not say in your heart, it's too hard. That is, To bring Christ down. First it was to bring the commandment near so I can do it. And now it is to bring Christ near so that He will do it in His incarnate life. In verse 7, Neither does the righteousness from faith say, Who will descend into the abyss in the Old Testament to bring up the commandment so that I might do it? You cannot say that because only one can do it. Only one will fulfill it. Only one will someday enable you to fulfill it. And that is. That is to bring Christ up from the dead, you have the incarnation and the life of Christ on earth, and you have the resurrection and the life of Christ interceding in heaven and the whole life of Christ from incarnation to eternity is the replacement of your law keeping. I don't think if Moses were standing there watching Paul, he would say, you missed it. I think he would say, thank you. Thank you for getting it. Thank you for completing it. I didn't understand so much of what I was saying. I was so nervous when I wrote those words. I didn't. This is the first step. Well, first of all, notice carefully. Notice something really carefully. The incarnation to bring Christ down. Verse 6. And the resurrection to bring Christ up are things that God did with no reference to your law keeping whatsoever. You didn't keep the law so that the incarnation would happen and you didn't keep the law so that the resurrection would happen. These two things that are put in the place of your law keeping here are things done absolutely outside of you and independent of you on your behalf. Christ come down to live for you. Christ rises up to intercede for you and all of that is in place of this, for him, easy and doable law-keeping. And for you, impossible, until the heart is perfectly circumcised. And you love him with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. So, Paul sees here both justification in this chapter, and he sees Sanctification in this chapter. Moses teaches we must have perfect righteousness. It is doable, but none has done it. Paul infers Christ comes. He lives it, dies it, rises, does it perfectly on our behalf, credits it to us. Then, secondly, because of that great justification, that great step in the fulfillment of the new covenant, that entrance into the promised land, Now, not by righteousness, but by Christ. Now, we will one day be perfectly circumcised in heart and we will obey. And right now, sanctification is called the progressive change. But none of us changes enough in this life to warrant our justification. Verse eight, what should our response be? But what does the righteousness from faith say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth, it is in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim. So Bethlehem, there's so much more to say. Just want to jump into next week's sermon already with these great texts following, these great words about the lordship of Christ when he puts the name of Jesus in the place of Yahweh. Oh, it gets bigger and bigger as Paul goes on. But we're done. And let me just end like this. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few there be that find it. All of us Christians, and if you're not a Christian, please come, come to faith. All of us Christians live between perfect justification and perfect sanctification. That's where we live, in here. Justification is complete and perfect. You can't get any more accepted. You can't get any more righteous with the righteousness of Christ than you already are. You can't improve upon God's favor to you in Jesus Christ Justification is done by faith alone. Someday, by the completion of the circumcision of our hearts, we will love Him with all of our heart and all of our soul, and we will obey Him perfectly. It's coming. And now is where we live. And the, the pain and the sweetness of the Christian life, isn't it thats is so good when we obey Him? The fellowship is so sweet when we find our affections drawn out to rely on Him so fully and be so satisfied in Him that the, that the temptations of sex or of anger or resentment or vengeance or money that those temptations just fall away. I tell you, when those things happen and you just spontaneously, because of affection for Him and the circumcision of your heart, you're enjoying Him and loving Him. Those are the sweetest hours on planet Earth. And you're ready for heaven and you don't fear it at hell at all. They're way too seldom, aren't they? They're way too seldom. We are people who have to say with the Apostle Paul, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We just have to say it again again. You'll never get beyond it. And love him more because of it. He's your righteousness. He's your victory over the guilt of sin. He's becoming your victory over the power of sin. Love him. Embrace him. And he is at work in you to sanctify you. May you go in the power of your finished justification by faith alone and in the power of Christ's presence in your life to love you and sanctify you and in the hope that one day, gloriously, it's going to be finished and you'll never sin again. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.